Well, good morning. Welcome to West Meadows at Church. If you are tuning in for the first time and I haven't had a chance to meet you in the past, my name is Mark Dixon. I'm the lead pastor here at West Meadows, and we're really glad that you've chosen to be a part of our gathering here today, as we as a church are spread out throughout the city and throughout uh, regions beyond that even, uh, trying to keep in the regular practice of coming together each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for the purpose of, of fellowship and of worship and of a time of teaching. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we just started a new sermon series on the book of Philippians, which is referred to at times as the epistle of joy. And at times such as the ones we're living in right now, I'm sure we could all use a little more joy than we experience in the world these days. If you're with us then, you'll remember that we, we introduced the first part of the book where Paul talks about how he's in prison in, in Rome and that he's a prisoner not just under the Roman guard and under the Roman government, but, but he's a prisoner, a slave of Christ, he even says. And as he writes to this church that he planted a, a, a short time earlier in a town called Philippi, he, he extends what he says is grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. He wants them to experience grace and peace. But he also reminds them that even though they're separated geographically, even though they have different situations going on in each of their lives, that they share a unity in Christ as well is that while Paul's in Rome and, and they're in another part of the world, they share this unity in Christ. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not just the source that binds them together. It's also the source of the joy that they can experience together. Now, the letters that we find in Scripture and even letters that we find written of this time in history followed a typical pattern where after we have an introduction like we covered last week, the author of the letter would then get into a moment of sharing with the recipients a bit of a personal update. And that's what we're going to have a look at today, as, as Paul does that very thing. But as we're going to see, what he shares with them is very different than what they're expecting. Because as we know from our own lives, there's different situations that can be viewed from different levels and different perspectives and lead us to different outcomes. You know, I saw an example of this in my own community this past week. I was out for a walk, and, and I live in one of the communities around the church here. It's, it's a newer community, and if you've been to some of those, or if you yourself live in one, you'll be familiar that they tend to build these houses around these water features, these, these ponds that exist. Now, we know that essentially this pond is like, is like storm sewer. It's basically part of the drainage system for the city. And, and at this time of year in particular, when you go down there with the freeze-thaw cycles that we have, it, it's a lot more of a mud puddle than anything else. It's just muck and mess. And, and that's what we see on kind of the surface levels. We go down to these areas right now. But we can look deeper. If we look deeper and, and see that there's more going on underneath the mud, underneath the ice that's melting and the snow that, that covers it on occasion, what we can see is that, is that it's actually a pond. And in just a short period of time, the, the water level is going to rise again. Uh, ducks are going to fly in and geese are going to fly in and, and swim on that pond. They're, they're going to build nests and, and soon enough as, as the grass comes up and as, as the flowers come up, we'll, we'll see mama ducks with her geese fall, or her, her ducklings following behind her in the water and it'll become a place where the community starts to gather and goes for walks and, and sits on the benches and enjoys the area that they're in. That it's, it's an area in the community where people have paid a premium to have houses that back on to that water feature. You see, on one level, it's just part of a septic system. It's a mud hole. It's just a pit right now. But we know there's more going on in that area. 
that there is beauty that is being stirred if we have the eyes to see it and give it time to develop. You see, this deeper view of things is similar to the perspective that Paul shares with his church in this part of the letter, where beneath the surface, he has the eyes to see that God is still at work, that God is stirring something in his situations, and that there is this beauty of new life that is starting to rise up in the world around him, if he and his audience will have eyes to choose to see it. You know, the Philippians expected Paul to be miserable. On the surface level, they thought he was suffering because he was in jail. And, and we can understand that. When we think of somebody being in jail, the, the image that comes to our mind is, well, they, they have no freedom. They're, they're imprisoned. It must be cold on those stone floors, and there's not even a mattress to sleep on, and you're probably eating moldy bread, and you're, you're lonely and sleepless and lonely without visitors to come see you. On the surface, that's what you'd expect of somebody who's in prison. But, but Paul takes a deeper look. And, and as we continue reading in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, picking up today in verse 12, this is the perspective he shares with them. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. See, Paul's not downplaying his situation. He's not denying the reality where he is. But he is inviting us and he's inviting his audience to look beneath the surface. He's saying, yes, I, I am in prison. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. You see, because God is at work in the midst of this. God's not at work in spite of this. God's at work in the midst of this. Because, and he expounds upon that as we keep reading in verse 13 and 14, where he says, as a result, as a result of him being in prison, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See, Paul's not just in prison. He's actually chained to a guard 24-7. And so, yes, while he is confined to this space and he's, he's in this situation, he is a guard attached to him 24-7, in part because he's under arrest, but, but also because if you were to read the whole story behind the reason for him being in prison, there are people who are trying to kill him. So he needs constant supervision to keep him safe. And this is great for Paul. You see, according to the Roman government, according to the guards in the palace, they think he's the captive. But from Paul's perspective... He's got himself a captive audience. <laughs> and these are great people to preach to. Like, think about it. He's chained to a guard who can't leave Paul, and so Paul's going to strike up a conversation. He's, he's going to share his heart. He's going to share his faith. He's going to share his life with that guard. And when shift change comes, and that guard unshackles himself from Paul and goes home, and the next guard comes in, Paul can just start all over again, <laughs> have another whole sermon to share with a new audience that just shackled themselves to him. And as this is happening, it's becoming the talk of the barracks. As these guards talk to each other about, did you get a chance to go talk to Paul? Have you guarded Paul yet? Well, what did he say to you? What did he say to you? And, and they're starting to find truth and starting to find application to the reality of what he's sharing with them about Jesus Christ. And they're becoming believers through this. But in addition to this, you see, Paul was a Roman citizen, which means that he did have some rights. 
And when we think about him being in prison, it, it wasn't like a dungeon. It, it, there was a time in his life where he would serve time in like a, like a really cold, dingy, dark dungeon. But, but in this particular time, he was essentially under house arrest, which is similar to what we would understand that to be today. And so while he did have limited freedoms, he was allowed to have visitors who would come to see him. In fact, local believers in Rome would, would come to this house that he was locked in, and, and they'd visit with them. They'd talk with them. They would, they would study God's Word together, and he would share with them the truths about Jesus. And from these conversations, and from the demonstration of Paul's faithfulness in the midst of his situation, we start to find that they are growing in their confidence. They are growing in their own boldness for the sake of Christ. You see, these were people who were at one time afraid to speak the name Jesus to, to their friends and family. They, they had the world they lived in, their, their secular kind of Monday to Saturday world, but then they had their Sunday church life as well, and, and the two never shall meet. But as they're meeting with Paul, as they're seeing his example, their boldness and their confidence is growing, and the two worlds are starting to meet as they're seizing opportunities to share their faith with those around them. And therefore, we see that because Paul was in chains for Christ, the good news of Christ is advancing. Now, as we look at this example, I, I think it challenges us to consider where our perspective, perhaps even where our focus is at in the midst of the trials and the situations in which we find ourselves. You know, I, I know many people are still adjusting to, to the closing of, uh, of businesses and different services, and in particular for us in our context, the, the, essentially the closing of the church, not, not just here at West Meadows, but, but throughout North America and even the world. And we can view this on a surface level. At a surface level, as I stand here right now, the sanctuary is empty. I can tell you that finances are dropping. Bible studies are being canceled. Life groups, which is, is the primary discipleship tool, the, the primary means where we here at West Meadows fellowship together, learn together, serve together. Our life groups are struggling to find new ways to exist and to operate in this reality in which we find ourselves. And looking at all these changes, all of these challenges in which we find ourselves, it can lead us to fear. It can lead to a sense of anxiety and, and, and even a, a question of uncertainty as to what is the future for the church in North America. But look deeper. I, I want to challenge you to go from that surface view to look deeper. Look beneath the surface. And what do you see? Do you see that God is doing something? Do you see, can you see that God is stirring something? That there's beauty of new life starting to emerge from the situation. Can we go deeper and see what else is going on? Because there is more going on. Here's what else I see when I look at our situation. I see followers of Jesus Christ who are learning to feed themselves. They are no longer settling for being spoon-fed by a pastor for an hour on Sunday morning, but they themselves are learning to open their Bibles. They're learning to pray. They're learning to study in their own homes, in their own lives. I see parents who are becoming the priests of their homes as they themselves train up their kids, pray with their families, guide and instruct their children in the way of the Lord. And we are honored as a church to come alongside and equip you in that adventure. 
I see the church itself starting to reach out to the community and into one another in fellowship that we have here. And, and our interactions with the community and those who are part of the church is leading to our hearts beginning to mirror God's heart for the lost. I see the gospel message no longer just being words on the page of the Bible, but being acted out in action, indeed, being expressed through words and finding passion that demands to be shown through action in our hearts. I see a church, the good news of Jesus Christ, that at one time our messages were locked within the walls, confined to the physical space of a sanctuary, but now there are millions of churches that are going online every single week, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, declaring that life is better with Jesus than any other option this world has to offer, and there are millions of these messages going out to those people who would never step foot into a church. You see, people, God is at work. God is at work in the midst of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Something is stirring. There is something beautiful that is being done. There is something new that is happening. And I believe that God is at work within us, within our congregation, and that he can use you and your story to advance the gospel. So I ask you, who in your life Where, what situation do you find yourself in right now where you could step out in boldness? Where you could find the confidence that perhaps didn't exist in a time before? And if you're to take a deeper look, as as I encourage you to do, that you will find the opportunities. That you will find and see the beauty of what God is doing as he's creating new life in the world around you. And he invites you to join him in that. I want to be honest, I want to be frank with you about it. Not only will you see those wonderful things, I think you'll also find pockets of opposition to it. And we're probably not surprised to hear that, because I don't just mean opposition from those who are opposed to the things of Jesus and who need to hear of his love and grace for them as well, but I also mean of those who are opposed to, to certain actions, even though they may share the same faith and proclaim the same good news of Jesus Christ that we attend to. No, Paul actually endured this as well. See, the troubles that Paul was experiencing mirrored this as well. He entered into this arena. But so too did his perspective of this deeper look of seeing what God was doing. See, as we continue reading in, in verse 15 and 17 of, Romans, or of uh, Philippians chapter 1, we see that there are these impassioned believers who are going out and sharing the good news, but they fall into two different groups. You see, there are those that are are preaching Christ, but they're doing so out of envy and and a rivalry with Paul. They they do so for selfish and insincere motives. In its essence, they're, they're trying to cause trouble for Paul. You see, we don't really know the reason for this, but they know he's confined. They know he's not able to defend himself, and out of the sense of rivalry and selfishness, they're trying to step out and stir up more trouble to make a bad situation unbearable for him. He's got these people on one side. On the other side, he has those that are preaching Christ out of goodwill and out of love, who, who know that Paul is in prison because he was defending, he was proclaiming the good news of Christ, and they see the injustice in that, and they are taking up the cause for him. As you consider these two groups, those who preach Christ out of rivalry and those who preach Christ out of goodwill, 
you probably already have an idea in your mind of, of what's warranted in such a situation. You already have an idea of what you would do if you were in Paul's shoes. But the way Paul responds is very different than perhaps how many of us would respond. You see, as we look at this section, it reminds me of a, of a previous church setting that I found myself in where times got a little tough in the congregation, and I won't go into all the details of the story, but it led to the point where we were about to fracture as a church. And indeed, that ended up happening, and, and the church split. And, and the lead pastor of the time went off and started a new church, and he took some of the people from the old church with him to, to start this new church. Well, that left the remnant who, who were part of the gathering with a lot of negative feelings and uncertainty for what the future held. And so as churches do, they called a meeting. <laughs> and as, as we gathered at this meeting, the initial conversations and what people were sharing, it was, it was full of anger that came from the sense of betrayal, of, of the sense of we need to defend ourselves. We need to be avenged for the wrong that was done to us. We have to stop them from starting that church. We cannot allow them to succeed. The, the way this is happening is not honoring to God. But after these conversations went on for a while, there was this one gentleman, this, this respected, wise patriarch of the church, who stood up. And he addressed the congregation who was gathered at that meeting. And he said, what I'm about to share with you will not be popular but it will be truth. And he read Paul's words that are recorded in verse 18 when he said, what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether through false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, Paul says, I rejoice. Paul's response, the, the words, the verse that that patriarch of, of the church quoted, it doesn't match our sensibilities. Because we think to ourselves, it does matter. Paul, defend yourself. Take a stand. Don't let them get away with it. But what he demonstrates is, instead is that his identity and his joy is attached solely to the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not based upon surfacey things like, like success and, and status. It's not based upon cash, career, or comfort. That it is tied completely to Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, it remains firm even when circumstances go against him. In Paul's situation, he's got one group that have bad hearts but a good gospel. And on the other hand, he has people that have good hearts and a good gospel. What is the end result? He rejoices. Why? Because the good news of Jesus Christ is going out and lives are being changed. Now, that doesn't mean conduct is inconsequential. I'm, I'm not suggesting, neither is Paul suggesting here, that our conduct doesn't matter. If you want to read more about that, you can go to 2 Corinthians and read chapters 10 through 13 where he addresses that very clearly there. But here's what I think is going on. You see, if Paul was able to speak to these rivals... If he could write them a letter, if they would come visit him, he would address this with them. He would, he would bring up the, the condition of their hearts with them, but he's not able to. He's in prison, and they're not coming to visit him. And besides, not only is he not able to address them directly with them, the issue that he's talking about is not about him. 
And certainly in his letter to the Philippians, he's not going to turn it from focusing upon the gospel to be an issue about him. The matter at hand for Paul is the advancement of the good news. And as far as he's concerned, if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, then why can't God speak through these donkeys that are rivaling against him? Now on the surface, what we see is that Paul is imprisoned, and it's awful. He's under house arrest. He's lost his freedoms. He's chained to a guard 24-7. His rivals are dragging his name through the mud. And he's completely unable to defend himself. But as he invites us to take a deeper look, as he invites us to see what God is doing, to see that God is at work, and as we catch a glimpse of that, we can understand that that is the reason he rejoices. Now Paul's response here is, is not a matter of him just sticking his head in the sand and, and denying the reality of it. He's not oblivious to the reality of, of what he's enduring. He's not pretending, I'm just going to close my eyes and pretend everything's okay until it goes away. That, that, that's not what's happening here. And we can be reassured of that because as Paul concludes this section we're going to look at today, he starts by sharing his thoughts and his feelings about the uncertainty of what the future looks like for him. You see, he knows that he is in a life and a death situation. And he proves that he's sober-minded. He proves that he knows that with one word, Caesar can either have him killed or set free. But Paul also remains confident in what we talked about last week and something he stated in verse 6 when he said, confident that he who began a good work will carry it out to completion. Confident of that. He shares his heart and his feelings with the Philippians. He thanks them for their prayers and, and he says that your prayers have resulted in this abundance of the power of the Holy Spirit within me during this time. And he says it's going to strengthen me so that I will stand firmly in the gospel. Even when I stand before Caesar, I will not be ashamed of my actions. I will not be ashamed of the gospel. I will boldly proclaim Jesus to the bitter end, he tells them. But then in verse 23, he starts to share that there's actually this kind of being, sense of being torn between two different realities. And, and he's struggling. Because he goes, on this one hand, if it's God's will that I were to lose my life, I'm ready. And, and it's curious, he, he actually even says there that there's a big part of him that desires that to be the end. Which, which is hard for us to hear, that somebody would desire to, to lose their life. But, but think about it, from Paul's perspective, there, there's no more prison. There's no more struggle. There's no more rivals. There's no more thorn in the flesh. Instead, he is with Jesus in eternity. You know, as a pastor over the years, I've sat beside many beds as people have started to slip into eternity. And we've had these kinds of conversations. There's one gentleman in particular that I recall who was, who was just writhing in his final days and it wasn't because of physical pain. It was because of this emotional and spiritual torment that he was under. And so I, I didn't personally know him myself, but I got a phone call and was invited into his house and into this moment. And as he shared with me his story in, in between the struggles and, and the pain that he was suffering, 
He shared with me that at one time he was a faithful follower of Christ, but, but he had fallen away. He had, he had started to go his own way and started to live more worldly, sinful lifestyle, and, and then cancer had struck him. And he knew it was going to take his life. It was, it was really merely days or weeks until he would pass. And he was tormented that he wouldn't be with Jesus because of his waywardness for the years prior to this. So as he and I talked and and we discussed the grace of God. We talked about how the fact that he was feeling these things was evidence that he was longing to renew that relationship. We talked about the fact that you cannot outsin God's grace. And that we are never more than one step from coming back into relationship, into right relationship with God again. And as he confessed those things in prayer, suddenly, at the end of the prayer, this peace descended upon him. And this pain started to leave him. And, and watching this whole process of his wife, who, who was never in her life a believer herself and was struggling with God and, and why God would take her husband from her. And she watched this. And she saw the peace descend upon her. And she went over to the bedside. She took his hand and she said, you can go now. And she released him into God's hand. And a few days later, he passed. And as she and I continued to talk, the example of peace descended upon him in this moment as he passed into eternity was the catalyst for her giving her life to Christ. You see, when people find assurance in Jesus Christ, in my experience with them, in these life and death moments, 100% of the time, when they find the assurance of Christ, peace comes with it. So Paul sees this as one of the options that's before him. And he's ready to be with Jesus. But he also says in verse 25 and 26, he, he shares that he's actually pretty sure that's not what's going to happen. He shares he's actually pretty sure he's going to be released. And, and while that's not his first choice for the outcome, he understands that it means more fruitful labor for him and for the church in Philippi. And that's probably more necessary for the situation he's in. But he says this, he, he says that in either case, it results in God's will being fulfilled in his life. Either way, God's will is fulfilled in his life. And he sums this all up in one of the most famous verses in the book of Philippians and in, perhaps even in Scripture, where he says in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a radical view of life. That is a radical view of circumstance that he finds himself in. And I think we would all understand and agree that that requires a deeper look at life. To be able to say those words, to live is Christ and to die is gain, requires us to have a deeper look at, Christ, at, at, at the situations in the world around us. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of us don't see it the same way as Paul did. I think most of us tend to have more of a surface view of the world and of the things that go on in the world around us. Where quite often people will be placing their joy or, or their lack thereof in, in things like, like pleasure and, and, and pursuits and, and happenstance, which we discussed last week. And so I ask you that question. If you were to rewrite that sentence, if you were to rewrite verse 21, for me to live is blank and to die blank, how, how would you honestly Fill that in. 
if we're honest with ourselves, I think there are some people out there who would say, for me to live is to find the perfect partner, but for me to die is to be alone. For me to live is to have the career that I've dreamt of, and to die would be to be laid off. For me to live is to have the dream home I've always wanted. But to die is, is to never be able to own a home. For me to live is to be known and to, and, and to be popular. But to die would be to be forgotten and irrelevant. For me to live would be success. To die would be to be rejected. For me to live would be good food. But to die to become worm food, essentially. However you answer that question, however you fill in those blanks, not only will it reveal the source of your joy, it will also reveal what you fear losing the most. From Paul's perspective, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If he lives, he will serve Christ. If he dies, he will be with Christ. And that perspective has an incredible power to transform a life. Because if we live for Christ, if that is what gives us the most joy, not, not food or fitness or fortune or fun or fame, but Christ, if that's what gives us the most joy, nothing can ever take it away from us. Because even the worst case scenario where we were to lose our lives, heaven forbid, simply brings us closer to Christ, our ultimate treasure and joy. Ultimately brings us closer to the one who gave his life for us because he loved us. The one who made it possible for us to have, to, to hold this joy, to experience this confidence, and to, to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because you see, without him, people who don't have a relationship with Christ, they, in their honest moments, they'll talk about how there's this emptiness inside them. There's just this void that never seems to get filled by anything the world offers. And, and so there's moments of, of fleeting joy, but, but then suddenly it's gone. And it's ruled by circumstances. It's ruled by situations. It's often referred to that that hole, that void, is, is a God-shaped hole in a person's heart. And the only piece that fits, the only piece that fills it in, is Jesus Christ. Jesus who came, who was sent by God to, to come and teach us how to live, but ultimately to give his life upon the cross to, to pay the price for our sins, our sins, those wrong things we've done against one another and, and against God that have caused a separation between us and God. Our sins that we are beyond the ability to pay for ourselves, but Christ stood in the gap and paid the price for us. And as he took care of our sins, through giving his life upon the cross, he also rose victorious on the third day, proving that he had defeated sin, death, and the grave. And he offers to everybody the free gift to be identified with him in his victory, to no longer be identified in the emptiness and the sinfulness of the things of this world at that surface level, but to have a deeper relationship and understanding that we were created for relationship with God. And he opens up to invite us into that relationship. We could have that forgiveness, that freedom, and that hope. And the Bible tells us that if a person believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they will be saved. And you can do that right where you sit right now. You can do that by simply saying the words, something along the lines of, of thank you, Jesus, for, for paying the price that I could not pay myself.
Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the hope that we can't find in this world. Jesus, thank you for setting me free from my sin and fulfilling that hole in my life that I've been searching for my entire life. Lord, help me to grow to know you better, to experience you more, and to love you deeper. You gave your life for me. Now I give you mine. If you prayed that prayer, if you want to talk more about these things before you pray that prayer, we invite you to, to complete that connecting card online that Andrew talked about. Fill that in. Let us know where you're at, and we'll come alongside and journey with you for a while. Folks, as we see in this passage today, God is at work. Even when at the surface level our situations seem terrible, even when it seems, things seem darkest, even when we don't know what tomorrow holds, we can have confidence that God is at work, that he's stirring something beneath the surface, that there's this beauty of new life that is being birthed from beneath that surface. Look for it. And I promise that you will see God at work in your situations, not in spite of them, in the midst of them. I ask you, would you join him? Would you join us as a church during this time to see what he wants to do in you and through you this week? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of salvation, the freedom, the hope, the confidence. Oh Lord, and the joy that we can know by being in Christ. God, for those who have a need to accept you into their lives, or for those who perhaps a moment ago just did, I ask God that the Holy Spirit that now dwells within them would fill them with that peace, with that confidence, with that joy that doesn't make sense in the midst of circumstances, but makes sense in the presence of you. God, for those of us who are in the midst of, of fear, anxiety, uncertainty of what tomorrow holds in our lives, our families, our jobs, our finances, the, all of the things that are affected by this coronavirus, God, I pray for your peace for them as well. I pray for your confidence within them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to stand boldly and confidently, authentically as well, that, that when we share with other people the good news of Jesus Christ, we can share that it is not the strength of us, but Christ in us that gives us strength. And that other lives will be touched and changed and transformed by the power of Jesus. May we be witnesses. May we be vessels and instruments of your grace, truth, and love in these days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us here today. Hey, before you go, I just want to offer to you a couple of questions that, that you could perhaps use in the, in the living room or the room you're sitting in right now with, with the people you're gathered with, or if you want to write them down and use them for some personal reflection later, or even in the comment section of the video that's streaming right now, feel free to discuss these in that comment section and, and to keep the conversation going as we continue to learn together. And, and here's the two questions, just two questions. Number one. Where have you seen God working? Where, where have you seen God moving in the world around you this past week? It, it might cause you to stop for a second and look back and look deeper into the events that have transpired. But I'm sure you'll see him in there. You'll see a glimmer of God in the events of your life. You'll, you'll see his fingerprints on the things that have transpired this past week. But then here's the second question. How would you finish that statement? 
that verse, verse 21. How would you finish the statement? For me to live is blank, and to die is what? Finish that sentence for yourself. If you want to be really risky, if you want to be really bold, I'd even challenge you to ask a, a close friend, uh, ask your spouse at, when they're happy with you, ask them about this, ask them how they would finish that sentence on your behalf based upon what they observe in you. That's risky. I, I admit that. But it can also be very revealing. So, a couple of questions for you to consider, but also I want to leave you with this finally, that there are two verses. Every week I want to give you a Bible verse from our passage that you can memorize that can be, can be important to your, to your walk with the Lord this week. And so last week the verse I wanted you to memorize was, was Philippians 1 verse 6 that says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 verse 6. Here's this week's verse. Philippians 1 verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Thanks for being with us this week. Reach out to us at the church office if we can be of assistance to you. Let us know how we can help. Otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday, 10 a.m., for West Meadows at Home. Blessings.